Chapter 14 of Murder in the Gunroom. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Murder in the Gunroom by H. Beam Piper. Chapter 14. Neither of them spoke for a moment or two. Then, after they had left the criminological journalistic uproar at the river's place behind, and were approaching the village of Rosemont, Pierre turned to Rand. You know, he said, for a disciple of Korsipsky, you came pretty close to confusing orders of abstraction a couple times back there. You showed that Stephen was at home while Rivers was taking that phone call, a little after ten. Aren't you overlooking the possibility that he came back to Rivers after you and Philip Cabot left the Gresham place? Rand eased the foot pressure on the gas and spared young Jarret a side glance before returning his attention to the road ahead. Understand, Pierre hastened to add, I don't believe that Stephen was fool enough to kill Rivers over that fake North and Cheney, but weren't you producing inferences that hadn't been abstracted from any descriptive data? Pierre, when I'm working on a case like this, any resemblance between my opinions and the statements I may make is purely due to conscious considerations of policy, Rand told him. I don't want Farnsworth or Mick McKenna going around bitching this operation up for me. If they feel justified in eliminating Gresham on the strength of that phone call, I'm satisfied, regardless of the semantics involved. Right now, the thing that's worrying me is the ease with which I seem to have talked Farnsworth into laying off Gresham. He and Olson both have single-track minds. They may just dismiss that telephone alibi, such as it is, as mere error of the mortal mind, and go right ahead building some kind of ramshackle case against Gresham. Since they picked him for their entry, they won't want to have to scratch him. Damn, I wish I could think of where Walters could have sold those pistols. Well, if Rivers wasn't involved somehow, why was he killed? Pierre wondered. Hey, maybe Walters sold the pistols to Umholtz. He's just as big a crook as Rivers was, only not quite so smart. Rand nodded thoughtfully. Maybe so, and suppose Rivers found out about it and tried to declare himself in on it. That stuff would be worth at least ten thousand. I doubt if whoever bought it paid Walters more than two. In the Umholtz Rivers income bracket, the difference might be worth killing for. That's right, and Umholtz was in the infantry, in the other war. He served in the 28th Division. He was trained to use a bayonet. And he'd pick that short Mauser. It has about the same weight and balance as a 1903 Springfield. Well, you know, the killer wouldn't need to have been trained to use a bayonet, Rand pointed out. Mick McKenna made that point this afternoon. There have been a lot of war movies that showed bayonet fighting. Pretty nearly everybody knows about the technique that was used. And against an unarmed and probably unsuspecting victim like Rivers, a great deal of proficiency wouldn't be needed. He slowed the car. Up this road? he asked. Yes, that's my place, over there. Pierre pointed to a white-walled, red-roofed house that lay against the hillside, about a mile ahead, making a vivid spot on the dull grays and greens of the early April landscape. It consisted of a square, two-story block, with one-story wings projecting to give it an L-shaped floor plan. It reminded Rand of farmhouses he had seen in Sicily during the war. "'Come on in and see my stuff if you have time,' Pierre invited, as Rand pulled to a stop in the driveway. I think I told you what I collect. Personal combat arms. Both firearms and edge weapons. 
They entered the front door, which opened directly into a large parlor, a brightly colored, cheerful room. A woman rose from a chair where she had been reading. She was somewhere between forty-five and fifty, but her figure was still trim, and she retained much of what in her youth must have been great beauty. "'Mother, this is Colonel Rand,' Pierre said. "'Jeff, my mother.' Rand shook hands with her and said something polite. She gave him a smile of real pleasure. "'Pierre has been telling me about you, Colonel,' she said. There was a faint trace of French accent in her voice. "'I suppose he brought you here to show you his treasures?' "'Yes. I collect arms, too. Pistols,' Rand said. She laughed. "'You gun collectors, you're like women looking at somebody's new hat. Will you stay for dinner with us, Colonel Rand?' Why, I'm sorry, I can't. I have a great many things to do, and I'm expected for dinner at the Flemings. I really wish I could, Mrs. Jarret. Maybe some other time. They chatted for a few minutes, then Pierre guided Rand into one of the wings of the house. This is my workshop, too, he said. Here's where I do my writing. He opened a door and showed Rand into a large room. On one side the wall was blank. On the other, it was pierced by two small casement windows. The far end was of windows for its entire width, from within three feet of the floor almost to the ceiling. There were bookcases on either long side, and on the rear end, and over them hung Pierre's weapons. Rand went slowly around the room, taking everything in. Very few of the arms were of issue military type, and most of these showed alterations to suit individual requirements. As Pierre had told him the evening before, the emphasis was upon weapons which illustrated techniques of combat. At the end of the room, lighted by the wide windows, was a long desk which was really a writer's assembly line, with typewriter, reference books, stacks of notes and manuscripts, and a big dictionary on a stand beside a comfortable swivel chair. "'What are you writing?' Rand asked. "'Science fiction.' I do a lot of stories for the pulps, Pierre told him. Space trails and other worlds and wonder stories. Mags like that. Most of it's standardized formula stuff, what's known to the trade as space operas. My best stuff goes to astonishing. Parenthetically, you mustn't judge any of these magazines by their names. It seems to be a convention to use hyperbolic names for science fiction magazines a heritage from what might be called an earlier and ruder day. What I do for Astonishing is really hard work, and I enjoy it. I'm working now on one for them based on J.W. Dune's time theories, if you know what they are. I think so, Rand said. Polydimensional time, isn't it? Based on an effect Dune observed and described, dreams obviously related to some waking event, but preceding rather than following the event to which they are related. I read Dune's experiment with time some years before the war, and once, when I had nothing better to do, I recorded dreams for about a month. I got a few doubtful to fair examples and two unmistakable Dune-effect dreams. I never got anything that would help me pick a race winner or spot a rise in the stock market, though. Well, you know, there's a case on record of a man who had a dream of hearing a radio narration of the English Derby of 1933 including the announcement that Hyperion had won, which he did, Pierre said. The dream was six hours before the race, and tallied very closely with the phraseology used by the radio narrator. Here. 
He picked up a copy of Tyrell's Science and Psychical Phenomena and leafed through it. Did this fellow cash in on it? Rand asked. No, he was a Quaker and violently opposed to betting. Here, he handed the book to Rand. Case 12. Rand sat down on the edge of the desk and read the section indicated, about three pages in length. Well, I'll be damned, he said as he finished. The idea of anybody passing up a chance like that to enrich himself literally smote him to the vitals. I see the British Society for Psychical Research checked that case, and got verification from a couple of independent witnesses. If the SPR vouches for a story, it must be the McCoy. They're the toughest-minded gang of confirmed skeptics anywhere in Christendom. They take an attitude towards evidence that might be advantageously copied by most of the district attorneys I've met, the one in this county being no exception. What's this story you're working on? Oh, it's based on Dune's precognition theories, plus a few ideas of my own, plus a theory of alternate lines of time sequence for alternate probabilities, Pierre said. See, here's the situation. Half an hour later, they were still arguing about a multidimensional universe when Rand remembered Dave Ritter, who should be at the Rosemont Inn by now. He looked at his watch, saw that it was 5.45, and inquired about a telephone. Yes, of course, out here. Pierre took him back to the parlor where he dialed the inn and inquired if a Mr. Ritter from New Belfast were registered there yet. He was. A moment later, he was speaking to Ritter. Jeff, for God's sake, don't come here, Ritter advised. This place is six deep with reporters. The bar sounds like the second act of the front page. Tony Ash and Steve Drake from the Dispatch and Express, Harry Bentz from the Mercury, Joe Rawlings, the AP man from Lewisburg. Christ only knows who all. This damn thing's going to turn into another Hall Mills case. Look, meet me at the beer joint about two miles on the new Belfast side of Rosemont, on Rue 19. The white with red trimmings place with the big pab sign out in front. I'll try to get there without letting a couple of reporters hide in the luggage trunk. Okay, see you directly. Rand hung up, spent the next few minutes breaking away from Pierre and his mother, and went out to his car. Trust Dave Ritter, he thought, to pick some place where malt beverages were sold for a rendezvous. Dave's coupe was parked inconspicuously behind the red-trimmed roadhouse. Opening his glove box, Rand took out the two percussion revolvers and shoved them under his trench coat, one on either side, pulling up the belt to hold them in place. As he went into the roadhouse, he felt like Damon Runyon's twelve-gun tweeny. He found Ritter in the last booth, engaged in finishing a bottle of beer. Rand ordered bourbon and plain water, and Ritter ordered another beer. I have the stuff tipped left with Kathy, Ritter said, taking out a couple of closely typed sheets and handing them across the table. He said this was the whole business. Rand glanced over them. Tipton had neatly and concisely summarized the provisions of Lane Fleming's will, and had also listed all Fleming's life insurance policies with beneficiaries, including a partnership policy on the lives of Fleming, Dunmore, and Anton Varsic, paying each of the survivors $25,000. I see Gladys and Geraldine and Nelda each get a third of Fleming's premix stock, Rand commented. 
but before they can have the certificates transferred to them, they have to sign over their voting power to the board of directors. Evidently, Fleming didn't approve of the feminine touch in business. Yeah, isn't that a dandy? Ritter asked. The directors are elected by a majority vote of the stockholders. They now have the voting power of a majority of the stock. That makes the present board self-perpetuating and responsible only to each other. So it does, but that wasn't what I was thinking of. According to Tibb, the board is 100% in favor of the merger with national milling and packaging. We'll have to suppose Fleming knew that. There must have been considerable intramural acrimony on the subject while he was still alive. Now, since he opposed the merger, if he had intended committing suicide, he would have made some other arrangement, wouldn't he? At least one would suppose so. Well then, Rand asked, why, since he is so worried about these suicide rumors, doesn't Good use the one argument which would utterly disprove them? Or is there some reason why he doesn't want to call attention to the fact that Fleming's death is what makes the merger possible? Well, that would be calling attention to the fact that the merger made Fleming's death necessary, Ritter pointed out. He poured more beer into his glass. While we're on it, what's the angle on this butler's livery I was supposed to bring? I brought my tux, and I borrowed a striped vest from the theatrical property exchange, and I brought that Dago 380 of yours. But what makes you think the Flemings are going to be needing a new butler? You going to poison the one they have? The one they have has been exceeding his duties, Rand said. He was supposed to clean the pistol collection. Not content with that, he's been cleaning it out. I know it was the butler. He went, at length, into his reasons for thinking so, and described the modus operandi of the thefts. Now, all this is just theory so far, but when I'm able to prove it, I'm going to put the arm on this, Walters, if it's right in the middle of dinner and he only has the roast half-served. And I want you ready to step into the vacancy thus created. I'm going to be busy as a pup in a fireplug factory, and I'll need some checking upping done inside the Fleming household. He went on in meticulous detail to explain about the river's murder. I'll have some work for you before you're ready to start buttling, too. Disencumbering himself of the two percussion revolvers, he laid them on the table. I want you to take these and show them to this barbecue man. Get from him a positive statement, preferably in writing, as to which, if either, he sold to Lane Fleming. You might show your agency card and claim to be checking up on some stolen pistols that have been recovered. Then, if he identifies the Legion Rigdon, take the colt and show it to Elmer Umholtz. You want to be careful how you handle him. We may want him for puncturing rivers, though I am inclined to doubt that as of now. Get him to tell you, yes or no, whether he reblued it and replated the backstrap and trigger guard, and if he did it for Rivers, and if so, when. I know that's been done. The bluing is too dark for a Civil War period job. The frame, which ought to be case-hardened in colors, has been blued like the barrel and cylinder. The cylinder engraving is almost obliterated, and you can see a few rust pits that have been blued over. But I want to know if this gun was ever in Rivers' shop. That's the important thing. Uh-huh. Got the addresses? Rand furnished them, and Ritter noted them down. The waitress wandered back to see if they wanted anything else. 
She gave a small squeak of surprise when she saw the two big six-shooters on the table. Rand and Ritter repeated their orders, and when she brought back the drinks, the Colt and the Leech Rigdon were out of sight. The way I see it, everybody who's within a light year of this river's killing is trying to pin the medal on somebody else, Ritter was saying. The Lawrence girl was afraid young Jarret had done it. Right away she sicked you onto Gillis. Gillis didn't lose any time putting McKenna and Farnsworth onto Gresham. Gresham's the only one who didn't have a patsy ready. You're supposed to dig one up for him. And Jarret, the first chance he gets, introduces Umholtz. He stared into his beer as though he thought ultimate verity might be lurking somewhere under the suds. Do you think it might be possible that Rivers bumped Fleming off in spite of his getting killed later? he asked. Anything's possible, Rand replied. Except where some structural contradiction is involved, like scoring thirteen with one throw of a pair of dice. Yes, he could have. The way the Flemings leave their garage open as long as any of the cars are out, anybody could have sneaked into the house from the garage and gone up to the library to the gunroom. The only question in my mind is whether Rivers would have known about that. That lawsuit and criminal action that Fleming was going to start, and that's been verified from sources independent of good, was a good sound motive. And say he took the leech and rigged in away after leaving the cult in Fleming's hand. Selling it to some collector who'd put it in with a hundred or so other pistols would be a good way of disposing of it. And I can understand his trying to buy the colt to get it out of circulation. Rand sipped his bourbon. But that leaves us with the question of who killed Rivers and why. Well, because Fleming is dead, and it doesn't matter whether he was murdered or died of old age, Walters starts robbing the collection. He sells the pistols to Rivers, Ritter reconstructed, and as Rivers doesn't want them around his shop till they've had time to cool off, he stores them with this Umholtz character, who seems to have been in plenty of crooked deals with Rivers in the past. The pistols are worth about ten grand, and nobody knows where they are but Rivers and Umholtz. And if Rivers drops dead all of a sudden, nobody will know where they are except Umholtz, and in a couple of years he can get them sold off and have the money all to himself. Yes, Dave, that's good sound murder, too. And Rivers would sit down and drink with Umholtz, and Umholtz could take that Mauser out of the rack right in front of Rivers, and Rivers wouldn't suspect a thing till it was too late. Of course, it depends upon two unverified assumptions. One, that the pistols were sold to Rivers, and two, that Rivers stored them with Umholtz. And three, that Walter stole the pistols in the first place, Ritter added. You know, it's possible that somebody else in that house might have stolen them. Yes. As I said, anything's possible within structural limits, but possibilities exist on different orders of probability. We can't try to consider all the possibilities in any case, because they are indefinitely numerous. The best we can do is screen out all the low-order probabilities, list the high-order probabilities, and revise our list when and as new data comes to light. Well, I've told you why I think Walters is a good suspect. From what I've seen of that household, I think Walters was personally loyal to Lane Fleming, and I don't believe he feels any loyalty to anybody else there, with the exception of Gladys Fleming. He might keep quiet about the missing pistols if she were the thief. 
If Dunmore or Varsic or either of the girls had done the stealing, he'd tell Gladys, and she'd pass it on to me. She would be glad of anything that could be used against any of the others. And if, on the other hand, she had stolen the pistols herself, she wouldn't have wanted me poking around and wouldn't have brought me in, at least not to handle the collection. Rand looked regretfully at his empty glass and decided against ordering another. Dave, I just thought of something, he said. How do you think this would work? He told Ritter what he had thought of. Ritter drank beer slowly and meditatively. It just might work, he considered. I've seen that gag work a hundred times. Hell, I've used something like that myself at least fifty times, and so have you. And I don't think Walters would be familiar enough with dick practice to see what you were doing. But if it turns out that Walters didn't sell the pistols to Rivers at all, what then? Well, if he sold them to Umholtz, Pierre Jarret's theory is still valid until disproved, Rand said. And if he didn't sell them either to Rivers or Umholtz, we'll have to conclude that Rivers and Fleming were killed by the same person, the Rivers killing being a security measure. That is, unless we find that Rivers was killed by Pierre Jarret, which is a sort of medium-high order probability. Jarret and the girl left Gresham's early enough for him to have killed Rivers. They were both pretty hard hit by that twenty-five grand blockbuster Rivers had dropped on them. Give me back that colt, Dave. All you have to do is get an identification on the Leech and Rigdon from the barbecue man. I'm going to let Mick McKenna handle Umholtz one way or another after we've concluded the Walters experiment. Until then, we don't want to stir Umholtz up. At all. End of chapter 14